Would you please open your Bibles to 1 Peter, chapter 4. It's on page 1,296. 1,296, 1 Peter, chapter 4. Our text this morning will be verses 7 to 11, um, but we will be starting at verse 1. So we can get a little bit of context before we get into the text. First Peter chapter 4, reading from verse 1 to verse 11, page 1,296. Starting in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time, in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Verse 7 to 11 constitutes our text, what we'll be looking at particularly this morning. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's very grace. For whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our text is verses 7 to 11, but before we begin, I would like to pray one more time. Oh God, our Father, by your Spirit, help us in this time. Help us to be wise and intelligent as we go through your word. Help us to be wise to hear the things that you have to encourage us with, to challenge us with, to convict us with, to even convert us with. And I pray for every single one of us in here, Lord, even myself included in that, that Lord, that we would go away from here loving Jesus more, believing in Jesus more, living for Jesus more. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this. Amen. I want to begin with a story. When I was in college, university, I spent a spring semester working part-time for a drywalling company. I had an easier schedule for school, so I had the time to make a little bit of money. Um, 
And I had two co-workers. One was, the boss was a, for the best, best that I could tell, a nominal Christian. Um, and this, my co-worker, not my boss, was an atheist. Full-on, full-fledged atheist, did not believe in Jesus. Um, and then the first day of work, during coffee time, um, my co-worker, uh, he found out that I was a Christian. And in that first coffee time together, we were chatting about, uh, about me, about him, about Christianity. And he said to me, he looked me in the eyes and said, Eric, by the time you're done working with us, you will no longer be a Christian. And he was going to make sure that that happened. Now, he, I'm pretty sure he was joking. He had a smile, he had a, he had a, a wink in there, but that didn't stop him from actually trying. Um, so over the next couple months, I was mocked uh, for my faith, I was ridiculed, I was, uh, yeah, all those things. I was, in, in a sense, persecuted. Uh, when I asked him to, to stop taking the Lord's name in vain, uh, he not only didn't do it, but he actually went on to make fun of God's name uh, in that, to see how I would react uh, to that. Uh, he identified himself not as a human, but as a spirit turtle to see how I'd react to that. He, he tested my tolerance. He, test, he tested my Christianity. He tested my love for him. He invited me to go drinking with him. He invited me to smoke pot with him. Um, but God was good. God was very gracious. And even through that, uh, we were able to have good conversations. Uh, he actually, by the end, started asking me for advice about, about parenthood, even though I wasn't even married yet. Uh, he asked me advice about all sorts of things. And I, I was able to share the gospel with him. But the point of the story is not that the Lord gave me grace to have a level head. Uh, the point of the story is this. After a long day of being mocked and in some ways persecuted for my faith, I went home, driving home, and, and the weight of the day, even the sadness of the day, hit me like a pile of rocks. I got sad, I got down, I got grumpy. There was a lot to handle in a day. And so when I got home, I didn't really have that much time for my family. I just wanted to go in my room, sit there, maybe take a nap, come up, have dinner, don't do the dishes, go back down, and just kind of be by myself. And so... The mockery of this atheist against me made me treat my family poorly. And this is what our audience in our text today is going through. These are new Christians dispersed in the, in, in the greater area of Israel. New Christians, and they are being mocked for their new faith. And they're being mocked so much that, that Peter is concerned that they aren't treating each other the way that they should. That when they get home from a long day of work, they don't have time for each other. They don't have time to love each other. They don't have time to serve each other. They don't have time to be hospitable to the other members in their church. So we're not talking about close, immediate families. We're talking about uh, church family, the family of God. How are you treating the family of God in the midst of persecution? And this, this text that we're looking at, this passage that we're looking at, is unique in this book because this is one of the only places that Peter specifically, exclusively, is talking about the inner workings of the people of God. 
Much of the, much of the rest of the, of the letter, he's talking about how you react to persecution, how you react to those who malign you, how you react to those who persecute you. But here, he's talking exclusively about how the family of God interact with one another. And so this is what this, conduct, what this audience is dealing with. And this, I think we can already see it in, in some ways, what we deal with every day. How do we interact with one another as the family of God, as the world outside of us mocks us, persecutes us? And so the theme this morning, in a nutshell, is longer than what's in the bulletin. I wanted to shorten it so that you wouldn't be scared about how big the theme was. Uh, But this is the theme in a nutshell. The fast approaching end of all things dictates that we, the family of God, are to live in Christian mutuality for the glory of God through Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful, I'm going to say it again. The fast approaching end of all things dictates that we, the people, the family of God, are to live in Christian mutuality, one anothering, for the glory of God through Jesus Christ. And we'll be looking at this in three points. The grounding of Christian mutuality, the grounding The commands of Christian mutuality, we have four commands. So under point two, we have four commands. And then lastly, the purpose of Christian mutuality. So the grounding, the commands, and the purpose. So let's first look at the grounding for mutuality. Please look at me at verse 7. Verse 7a. The end of all things is at hand. This is the grounding, this is the foundation of why Peter says we need to live in Christian mutuality. The end of all things is at hand, and already we need to see that this isn't about just time. The end here, the word used in the Greek, doesn't just refer to time, but it actually has a kind of a a meaning of the goal of all things. The purpose of all things. The goal of all things is fast approaching. Everything that we do, everything that is said, everything that God providentially puts into place is coming to an end and its goal is about to be fulfilled. And in light of that coming fulfillment, in light of that coming end, he gives four commands. What Peter is basically saying to these people is that you all need a reality check. We can think about it like this. When I was a kid, sometimes my parents would leave us, uh, my siblings and I, and they would always give us a task to do. We want you to vacuum the basement. We want you to clean the kitchen while we're gone. All, all good. They give us commands. But when they were actually gone, now we had a very difficult decision to make. Are we going to obey our parents? Or are we not going to obey our parents? Our parents are gone. We have the, we have the run of the roost. But are we going to live in according, accordance to the reality that our parents are actually coming home at some point? Or are we going to live in our current reality that our parents are gone and so we can do whatever we want? The good answer, kids, is to do what your parents tell you. And that's what Peter is saying too. Jesus is coming back. The end of all things is coming. Live in that reality. Don't live according to your current reality. Live according to the future. The end of all things, which is at hand. And so he gives four commands, the commands of mutuality. And we can see even in the structure of our text, and I'm going to nerd out for a second, so please bear with me. We can see even in the structure of the text how the grounding is first and then how the commands follow. 
In the original Greek, that first little phrase, the end of all things is at hand, ends with a period. Statement over, statement done. And then we have that very important word, therefore. Meaning that whatever comes next is derived directly from that first phrase. And in the original Greek, it isn't split up into three sentences like it is in our Bibles. A period at verse 8, period at verse 9, period at verse 10. No, it's one long sentence. So that shows, even just looking at the original language, that that first chunk of words, the end of, the end of all things is at hand, is the grounding. Therefore, and then he lists four commands that are derived from that grounding. All right, nerding out over. Let's get into it. The first command is this. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, I want us to notice, firstly, that this is completely opposite of how the world is living. That's why we read those first six verses. Look at verse 3 with me, if you will. Chapter 4, verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for, for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So while the world is living in self-indulgence and self-indulgence and self-fulfilling drunkenness, Christians, we are called to live in self-control, sober-mindedness, completely opposite of how the world is currently living in this text. But why are we called to live self-controlled and sober-minded? For the sake of our prayers. For the sake of our prayers. And you can kind of see why this is important. In lieu of the end, or we could say, just even simply, as the, world's, as the world will talk, right? Everybody dies. Everybody dies, and so let's make the most of the life that we have now. Ever, anybody heard of the, of the acronym YOLO? Nobody. Wow, that's terrible. So YOLO, you only live once. In light of the imminent death that we all are going to have, live your life to the fullest now. Do everything that you want to do now, because you're going to die one day. And so the world lives in drunkenness. The world lives in self-indulgence, trying to fulfill all of their passions in light of the end that is coming. But Christians pray. We keep our cool. We don't go off doing all that we want to do. We don't go off uh, drinking as much as we want, going to all the parties that we, that we want to do, making the most money that we possibly can. No, we live self-controlled, sober-minded lives, keeping our cool, so that we pray as the end is drawing near. Very different between the world and what we are called to do. Be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Command number two. Above all, meaning as a top priority, keep loving one another earnestly. Now the word there, earnestly, I prefer to translate it as strenuously. And the image that's supposed to kind of be working in our minds with this word strenuously is like if you've ever seen a, a, a horse race. If you've ever seen a horse race, you can see the muscles of the horses being pushed to their breaking point. They're running as fast as they can. Their muscles are being strained, and yet they continue. And yet they keep running. This is the kind of love that we Christians towards one another are called to have. A love that is stretched, a love that is strained, but yet doesn't snap, but yet doesn't give up. 
keeps loving, keeps straining. And it's a love that is for one another, right? We're getting into this, this language of mutuality now, this love of mutuality. So it's not like this half of the room gets to be loved and this half of the room gets to love. No, we are, we're all called to love each other and be loved by each other. For love covers a multitude of sins. This, again, is, is more of an explanation of this kind of strenuous love. What strains love? When we sin against each other. That strains love. Now, we are called to not break at this point, but to love each other even through the sin. To forbear with one another. To be patient with one another. Even though we sin against each other. To pray for one another. To help each other through the sins. And to keep loving each other even though we are sinned against. Even by one another in this room. Now I I ask you this question. What's the first step of allowing love to cover sins? Very simple. I I would say the first step of allowing love to cover sins is that we first actually need to know each other's sins. It can be our tendency very quickly to try to present ourselves as better than we are. We can put a tie on, we can put a dress on on Sunday, we can show up and we can look really Christian. We can look really good. But yet underneath the surface, we're not telling people, we're not sharing with people the sins that we've committed. We're not allowing others to love us through the sins, even because of the sins that we have committed. I have this tendency. Maybe if you don't have this tendency, that's great. But I do. And so I, I, I challenge myself with this, but I think we, we also all need to be challenged that there is a space, and it is a good thing to confess sin to one another. I'm not saying that you need to hang out all your dirty laundry for everybody to see, but pick a friend, pick a brother, pick a sister in the Lord, pick an elder, pick a pastor, and be honest with them about your sins. Don't you want them to be loving you? Don't you want them to be praying for you even in the midst of your sin? I was a part of accountability, uh, uh, an accountability group when I was in high school and university. We talked about sexual sin, and uh, most of it was confession and keeping each other accountable. And what was very clear to all of us was that if you weren't being honest in confession, if you weren't sharing with the brothers the sin that you committed in the past week, you're just going to keep on sinning. But Christian love helps each other in the midst of sin. Having people know your sin, having people know kind of the real you, allows them to pray for you, allows them to help you, allows them to keep you accountable. And so please don't hide your sin. Please don't sweep your sin under a rug and think that's what love is doing, covering sin. No, that's hiding sin. But we need to let love cover sin. So commandment number three, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, the last two commandments that we've been talking about are just that. They are commandments. They are actual verbs. Um, Be loving to one another. Be sober-minded. Now, this one, very interestingly, be hospitable, show hospitality is an adjective. 
Again, I just nerded out a little bit. But it's an adjective, meaning that it is, hospitality isn't necessarily something that we do, but it's something that a Christian is. Christians are called to be hospitable. And without grumbling. Now, hospitality was a very commonplace thing in the ancient world, especially for church. Because congregations in the, in the first century Christian, they didn't have big, beautiful buildings like this that could hold 150 people. No, they had to host church in their home. And not only that, but you had little pockets of Christian groups and probably only one minister for all of them. And so it was commonplace for the, for the first century church to have to host the traveling pastor, like Peter, like Paul, who would come town to town, and they would need to be hosted. They would need to be shown hospitality. For church, they would have to invite all the families into their own home in order to have church. And so you can, you can imagine very quickly how they would start to grumble eventually. Oh, it's my turn to host church again. Why can't the other family do it? I did it last week. This is a lot of work. There's a lot of food I have to make. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Now, there's a danger here that we all can fall for, including myself, that we can say, oh, I'm hospitable. I invite my friends over. Check that box. I invite the people over that I want to have over. But hospitality doesn't say that. Hospitality literally is love of stranger. Welcoming the guest, welcoming the one that you don't know. And so it's, it's an amazing thing to invite your friends over. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying either that you need to have, that every single person in this room needs to be your best friend. I'm not saying that either. But is it not strange if we are a family, if every single one in this room is a brother and sister, is it, would it not be strange if you don't know your brothers and sisters? I use Blake as an example. I asked him for permission for this, so it's okay. I asked Blake if I could use him as an example. If I asked you, Blake, to tell me about your family, I'm assuming this is your family here, uh, if I asked you to tell me about your family, how strange would it be if Blake could tell me all sorts of things about his mom and his dad, about his sibling, one sibling, and then for the youngest two siblings, he could tell me literally nothing about them. He would even have trouble telling me what their names were. That would be strange. That would be weird. But do, you, but do we know the name of every single person in this room? Now you might say, Eric, that's, that's crazy. There's way more people in this room than in Blake's family. But we're brothers and sisters. That's not just said as, 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 as a mode of sentiment. No, we are actually adopted brothers and sisters of our God and Father. We are brothers of Jesus Christ, and I am a brother of all of you. And all of you are my brothers and sisters. And so this command to be hospitable to one another without grumbling is a call to get to know your family. Even the family you don't know very well, even the family you don't actually talk to very often, that you don't have that much in common with. Again, you don't need to be their best friend. But do you know your family? Do you welcome everyone? Or do you pick and choose your little cliques? Now, I, I should say this. I, I, I need to say this. I have heard many, many great things about this church. 
particularly in the realm of hospitality. Uh, Josh and Rachel back there are my good friends, and they have raved about how hospitable your church has been. And I praise God for that, because there are lots of churches who aren't like that. And so this isn't meant to be a hammer coming down on your heads, but I thank the Lord for the way that he has already worked in all of you, to be this kind of hospitable, to invite the guest, to invite the stranger into your own home. So be encouraged by that, that the Lord is already working this in you, but also be encouraged to, to spur on, to continue to, to continue to cultivate this kind of hospitality. And so now the fourth command, serve one another. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, so that means every single one of us has received a gift. We each have a talent, we each have a gift that the Lord has given to us. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So again, it's not like this half of the room gets to be served and this half of the room needs to serve. No, we all serve each other using the gifts that God has given us as good stewards of God's very grace. Every gift that we have been given, every talent that we have, every dollar that we have, has been given to us by God not to own but to manage over. That's what being a steward means. Stewarding, managing over what God has given us. Our text is very clear here. We are good stewards. We are good managers of the gifts that God has given us when we use them for ourselves. Now that doesn't sound right. No, we are good stewards when we use them for others. That's how you're a good steward of the gifts that God has given you when you use them for others. Now, many of these things that we have talked about would be quite countercultural to the original audience, but this is the cherry on top. This is the top of the cake. This would blow their minds when they heard Peter say this to them because in the first century, they lived in a, an honor society, meaning that you had up and ups on the top and you had low lifes on the bottom. And the up and ups would be the masters and the low lifes would be the servants. And you only serve another if you're a servant. You don't serve another when you're the master. That would be beneath you. That would be terrible. You don't help those who are below you to rise up. No, you kick the lower one down in order for you to keep climbing up that corporate ladder. Oh, that sounds kind of like our society. Very individualistic society, those who push others down in order to raise yourself up. This would be very countercultural to the original audience, and even to us. Even to us. But then Peter specifies what serving each other looks like. He gives two examples in verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. So whoever has a gifting of, of speaking, of teaching elders, pastors, uh, other people in our midst who are good at, at speaking the truths of the Lord are to do so in a way that is in accordance with God's word, as one who speaks the oracles of God. And again, remember, that a good steward of this gift of speaking is the one who does it for others. Now, maybe many of us have been there in a Bible study where we have all the right answers, where we have all the right things to say, that we've read the passage, that we've read the book, and we're just going to show up the Bible study, and we're just going to show our knowledge. And then people will go, oh, wow, you know so much. I'm like, yeah, I know. 
pat ourselves in the back. That's a temptation for all of us. I'm speaking up here. I'm up here speaking to you. It's a temptation for all of us to be to 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 be seen as knowing and speaking well. But those of us who have been given the gift of speaking ought to do so not for our own reputation, but for the benefit of others, for the service of others, counting others more significant than ourselves. And just for a brief moment, I would like to speak a word of application to the men in the church, and particularly the young men. I'm not going to pick on you, Blake, again. Don't worry. Um, God has given each of you gifts and talents. God has given you a passion for something, to give your life to something. I would encourage all of you, but particularly the young men, to think and to pray and intentionally seek God's guidance on whether or not he calls you to ministry. If you show up to Mars, mid-America, on any given day, you will find out that each and every single one of us is very different. I'm quite different than Josh. I'm quite different than a lot of other people. I'm just quite different in general. But God does not have cookie-cutter ministers, cookie-cutter missionaries. I'm not saying that every single one of you needs to be pastors and missionaries. That, no. God will call you to the field in which he wants to, and you will be used, hopefully greatly, by the Lord for his glory and for the sake of his kingdom. But I would challenge all of you to think about, is the Lord leading you to ministry? The harvest is very, very hilariously plentiful. And the laborers are even more hilariously few. And this, this is not just for men as well. I shouldn't say this is just for men. Young women and women in general, think about how the Lord is leading you to use your gifts. Maybe it is speaking. Maybe it's more the serving side that we're going to talk about in a moment. But how can you use your gifts for the glory of God and for the sake of others? Do you have a passion for, for foreign missions? Not to be the missionary, but to be part of foreign missions and to, and, to, and to give of your life, your energy, your time to the work of the kingdom. Just a plug for ministry. The second category that Peter talks about, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And notice too that these two categories, speaking and serving, kind of encapsulate all of Christian ministry. Right? The Bible talks about Christian ministry being word and deed, speaking and serving. And so every single one of us falls somewhere within these categories, and I would bet actually most of us probably fall somewhere in between both of these categories. But whoever serves as, as, by the strength that God supplies, and that is truly amazing if you think about it, because not only is Peter saying that God gives the gift but he also supplies the strength to carry out the gift. So if we reflect and intentionally look at, okay, what gifts has God given me? We still need God in order to carry out that gift. If your gifting is speaking, if your gifting is serving, you still need God to help you actually carry that out. So prayerful consideration is required here. Whoever serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, uh, this past summer, I was part of an internship in Niagara Falls, Canada, um, and we had a plumber in our congregation, 
And this is an example of how, of how he served our congregation. He was a plumber, and on Saturdays, we always had some problem with our toilets or some problem with our kitchen. And so he would give of his Saturdays pretty much every week and fix whatever needed to be fixing. He didn't get paid for it. He didn't even get much recognition for it. But he served with the gift that God has given him for the sake of the church. My mother-in-law is really good at paperwork stuff and administration stuff. And so she's the bulletin editor for our church. She's using the gift that she has for the sake of the church. Organ players, piano players. One of the most important services that a church can do is making coffee. And if you don't think that's a gift, you've, you don't know what good coffee is then. <laughs> it's, it is a gift. And we can use our gifts that God has given to us and the strength that he supplies for the sake of the rest of the congregation. It does take self-analysis. It does take prayerful consideration of what God is doing in your heart. But pray that the Lord would show you and pray that the Lord would help you do it. Now before we move on to the purpose I want to ask this question. If we are gathering here as brothers and sisters in the Lord, every Sunday, every morning, and every evening, and if we're not doing these things, if we're not loving each other or being hospitable to one another or serving each other as this text is is challenging us to do, then what are we doing? Why are we here? God, by his grace and mercy, has called people from all different areas to come together each week, and to come together for various things throughout the week, but to come together for his glory ultimately. Absolutely, we're going to get to that. But also for our benefit. He has given us a family. He has given us a community to love, to serve, to be hospitable towards. And if we're not doing it, then why show up? Why don't, you just, why don't we just stay on our couches in our pajamas and watch church online? If we're not going to serve each other. If we're not going to love each other. But no, God, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, has designed the community, the family of God, in such a way that we come together, we fellowship in person, that we may love each other, serve each other. And another implication that we, that we really need to get to is that our text is very intentionally making those who, don't, who aren't part of this family feel left out. If you're not part of this family, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you haven't been adopted into this family through faith, you are meant to feel left out right now. Now, that's, that's me being blunt. But it's not me being blunt for the sake of being mean or cruel to you. No, it's so that you may be compelled to join. That you may be compelled to be part of this family. To be loved on, to be served on, to be shown hospitality, and for you to do those same things. You're being left out so that you may come in. Come into this family by faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your King. Then you get to enjoy all these benefits. We don't want you to believe for the sake of just benefits. We want you to believe for the sake of salvation as well. But believe, then you won't be left out. Now finally, we look at the purpose of mutuality. One other quick moment of nerding out. 
The phrase there, halfway through verse 11, in order that, that's a purpose clause. It means that whatever comes after is the purpose for what came before. In order that, so for all these things, you do these things for the purpose of that in everything God may be glorified. And so the purpose of everything that we've talked about, or we could say the goal of all that we've just talked about, is for the glory of God. What better motivator do you need to have than to bring glory to your God? Don't do these things so that your, your brothers and sisters will like you more, will see you doing great things, but do these things because it brings glory to your God, your God who is worthy of all honor, glory, majesty, worship, all those things. God is worthy, and doing these things brings him glory. Brings him glory through Jesus Christ. Why that? Why that little phrase? Why bring glory to God through Jesus Christ? It's very simple. Because if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, we couldn't bring glory to God. If it wasn't for Jesus Christ, we couldn't bring glory to God. It is only because of Jesus that even our best efforts of doing any one of these things is worthy of bringing glory to God. Because Jesus Christ is the one who did all of this perfectly. He's the one that did all of this perfectly. He, who was in heaven, descended down into the drunkenness of this world, into the self-indulgence of this world, and he was perfectly self-controlled. He was perfectly sober-minded. He entered drunkenness not to be poisoned by it, but to cure it. He not only entered this world of drunkenness, but on the cross, he was tempted to self-indulge. He was tempted. He was on the cross, and the crowds were mocking him. Jesus Christ, if you really are who you say you are, take yourself off the cross. Remove yourself from this suffering. But yet, he stayed cool. He stayed self-controlled. He did not give in to the worldly temptations of this place. No, he came to do the Father's will, and he did so perfectly. On the cross, Christ, Christ shows his ultimate example for all of these commands. Who has more strenuous love than Christ? Christ hanging on that cross is being pounded with the wrath of God for not his own sin, but for your sin and for my sin. His love for us was stretched to the breaking point, was strained, and yet he didn't come off. And yet he continued, and yet he continued to bear the entire full wrath of God, and he descended into hell because of his strenuous love for you. And not only, of our, not only are our sins fully covered by his love, but they are utterly forgiven so that God does not see us anymore as sinful, but as in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And on the cross, Christ shows perfect and absolute hospitality. We're going to be talking about this a lot this evening. But Jesus Christ left his own home, died on the cross, saved us from our sins so that we may be invited into his home. That we may be invited into heaven. We may be given a permanent invitation into a place that we do not deserve to be. He left his home to bring us to his the stranger, 
the guest, the sinner, is invited into his home. Not only is Jesus Christ the perfect example of love and hospitality, but he was the servant of all. Jesus Christ, who is the king of the universe, who created the entire world, through whom, by whom, for whom, the whole world was created, he came down and he washed disciples' feet. He was the master, and he gave an example of what masters are to do. They don't rule over, they don't lord it over others. No, they serve those who are, those who are beneath them. Jesus Christ served, he even served, he was obedient even to the point of death. Serving you and I, that we may have salvation if we believe in him, that you and I might be invited into his home, that you and I might feel the covering of our sins because of his love for us. He served us perfectly. Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is not just an example. He is the way in which we find salvation. He is the way through which we then can glorify God by doing all these things. Because God now sees us through the lens, through the glasses of Jesus. That even our worst ever, even our best efforts, all, all of them between can be seen as being worthy of glorifying God because Jesus Christ did it perfectly for our sake. That's why that little phrase is there, through Jesus Christ, because it's only through Jesus Christ that we can glorify God. Glorify God now. And as our passage says, to him be glory forever and ever. Glorify him now, but even glorify him forever and ever. And that's really important to get. Because forever and ever doesn't begin later. Forever and ever begins now. Begins now and then goes on forever. And so the command, the the challenge, the encouragement of our passage today is to do all these things, but to start doing them now. Start doing them now and then do them for the rest of your life. And then when Jesus comes again in glory and majesty and power, we may be in the new heavens, new earth, doing all these things perfectly forever, glorifying God, worshiping God, honoring God forever. Because he through Jesus, is the only one who is worthy of glory, power, dominion, forever and ever. Amen. Our passage says amen. And this is Peter, absolutely, saying a hearty amen, a yes, it is true, a hearty conviction that all of this he has said is true, but it also is for those who read it. Commentaries agree, more or less, that when the word amen is in a passage, is that those who read the passage, when they reach that point, they may then respond with their own hearty amen. That all these things are true, that all these things are good, that all these things are right. And so that's how I want us to end this morning. I'm going to read through the passage one more time. And if you truly believe everything that has been said, and if you truly believe that it is only through Jesus Christ that you can find salvation, that you can perfectly, not perfectly, truly bring glory to God, if you believe that, then I want you to respond with your own hearty amen. The end of all things is at hand. 
Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our Father who is worthy of all glory and dominion, God, we cannot do any of these things without your spirit strengthening us. God, assure us too that even in the ways that we so often fail in these ways, Christ's sacrifice even cleanses us of those ways in which we fail. God, so that this whole time together is not meant to lay guilt on us, is not meant to make us mad at ourselves or shameful of ourselves, but Lord, also see that our failings are covered by the blood of Christ, and then may that spur us on, encourage us even more by your Spirit to live these things out for your glory through Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we need your help in this. We need your Spirit in us to do these things. But we are confident in your promises, we are confident in your faithfulness, and we are confident in your Son, Jesus Christ, who has told us, who has promised us that he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. Because in 